This podcast is sponsored by 10 of those. If you're at the recent T4G conference, you probably went to the bookstore. It was run by 10 They want to serve the local church by bringing the best books from across the publishers at super low prices to conferences and churches across America. So if you're involved in running a conference or perhaps you have a women's retreat coming up or a church anniversary weekend, invite 10 to provide a pop-up bookstore. There is no charge for them to come. They'll recommend resources and serve you really well, taking care of all the stock, the cash register, sales tax, etc. And they come for conferences and churches of 300 people or more. They can also help you if you're doing things online. They can provide you with a customized online bookstore for your church, and there's no charge for that either. Email their team to get your bookstore set up. That's sales.us at 10 Sales.us at 10 Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast, where we have conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. And today we're going to talk about planting Baptist churches. Uh, on today's podcast, we have a first time guest, Matt Rogers. Matt wears a lot of hats. In fact, I'm going to let him explain some of those hats to you in just a moment. But Matt, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, good morning, Nate. Good to uh, good to be with you. Always been curious how the sausage is made with these B21 podcasts. So I'm, I'm pumped to see the inside scoop. Yeah, well, it's not always the same, but we'll, you hopefully this will be a, a good conversation. And uh, certainly uh, we're going to be talking about uh, something that you wrote uh, in particular, uh, 13 Pillars for Planting Healthy Churches, which in our estimation is planting Baptist churches. And so we'll talk some about that. Um, and uh, but first, I want to get to know you a little bit. So first, tell us your just a little bit of your testimony, how you came to know the Lord, how you kind of got into vocational ministry. And then again, as I mentioned, you you're, you got your hands in a lot of things you're doing. So talk about kind of the different hats you wear. Uh, let our folks get to know you a little bit. Yeah, I grew up in the Carolinas and was the the typical uh, engaged in a in a Baptist church growing up. But I would trace my my conversion to freshman year in college. I was at NC State. Grew up a Wolfpack fan, deep hatred for the Tar Heels. So that probably offends half your listeners, but uh, that that lingers to this day, um, particularly in college basketball and. Um, yeah, it was that state. Uh, people shared the gospel through a summer camp following my freshman year, uh, came to faith. And uh, really, I was in a social scene at state that wasn't wasn't really profitable for walking with the Lord. Had some buddies in the upstate of South Carolina uh, that were at Furman University. So I transferred to Furman, uh, connected with them. And uh, honestly, the story is, is uh, pretty similar to, to many in the Carolinas. I was a uh, reasonably competent young man that uh, that could put a few coherent sentences together was good, uh, good in front of a group. And so, you know, within about uh, nine months, I was on staff at the church as a youth pastor, you know, and that's uh, uh, the the typical, typical pathway, probably uh, not the decision I would make now. And God's providence, it was really good for me. Uh, it was good to uh, see and experience leadership firsthand and to be exposed to some of the underbelly of the church. But honestly, that started about a decade process with uh, very little discipleship, sloppy ecclesiology. I, I felt competent to certain aspects of the work, um, some natural gifts that lended themselves to vocational ministry, but I uh, didn't have a clear trajectory. And we bounced between declining traditionalism, was on a, on a church staff for a few years, and then um, kind of high-end churches show 
kind of the stationary crusade uh, mm-hmm. model for a few years. And we're de- uh, just disenfranchised with both of those and uh, ended up coming to Southeastern Seminary uh, to kind of put the pieces together. I think you and I were there around the same time, if not the, the exact same time. And uh, in God's kindness, we came to Southeastern to get an education and found the local church. We were members of a healthy church uh, there in the area that invested in us. I did an internship residency program with them, and uh, they cared for us really well. And a healthy local church ministry got my bones uh, through those two years. And so we spit out, um, I guess, uh, 07 to Cross Point Church in Clemson. They were just uh, getting rolling. I joined staff with them for the purpose of being sent to start a new church. We came back to Greenville in 09 to start what is now Christ Fellowship, the church that I pastor. And uh, yeah, I've been swinging at it ever since. There's a lot of uh, bumps and curves along the way, but we've been uh, back in the area. I did my PhD uh, at Southeastern in North American Missiology. And uh, through that process, I've just dabbled in a host of things, enjoy writing, um, am on faculty at Southeastern teaching church planting now work with Pillar Network, uh, doing some resourcing and coaching for our church plants. And my wife is on staff there as well, doing some women's ministry, uh, pastor here locally. So yeah, uh, handing a lot of different things. You pastor there locally, not your, your wife doesn't pastor there locally. That's right. Let's be clear. <clears throat> I think you actually left right when I was coming, uh, though we did over, overlap some when you would come back up for PhD work. And was it North Wake where you were at when you were here? Yeah, that's right. It was North Wake. And I remember us being there together because we took one really interesting uh, summer class uh, together that will not comment on the, on this podcast. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I do remember that class. Um, well, hey, a couple of uh, things. We, we just want to get to know you a little bit more. I'm going to ask some fun questions, real kind of quick questions, answers, you know, answers, uh, whatever comes to your mind immediately answer that way. But uh, let's start here. Favorite book that's not the Bible? Um. Peace Like a River. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, my wife converted me to uh, fiction novels uh, here uh, recently. And I, that and Bell Peppers, those are the two things that I said I would never do. And yeah. she uh, she won the battle. So, yeah, my two year old loves a little uh, Christian song called Peace Like a River. Um, That's so, not what I'm talking about. Nate. That's not what I'm talking about. You're yeah, but, I, you know, if I can talk about my two year old, I want to talk about her. So uh, second question, favorite athlete of all time. Oh my goodness. Um, so we're going Wolfpack ball. We're going to go Phillip Rivers um, and just, you know, just show my cards. When you said NC State, you know, my memory when we first moved to the Carolinas, so this is back in the 90s, was Cortiani and Monroe uh, on the basketball team. So fire and ice. Yeah. So I was, you know, the 83 college championship, the half court Hail Mary that, that uh, dunked in. I had that on VHS tape as a kid and I watched it so often that I can do the color commentary in the second half for memory. Like yeah. that was my, uh, that was my play. So the Jim Balvano days of college basketball. Now we've been woefully uh, underperforming for the last, let's say three decades. So I don't have much to quote about these days. It's tough. Well, you already mentioned bell peppers, but what's your favorite food? Oh man. So the, Dude, I sound like such a nerd with these things. Like uh, um, a baked potato, like a stuffed baked potato with all the toppings. Um, that's my that's my go to jam. If your favorite food didn't used to have parents, I'd absolutely judge you. So uh, <laughs> hopefully you put some of parents on there. I could also say I, I caught some uh, stream trout this uh, this weekend and grilled them up. And so like anything that I catch and kill 
is a lot of fun as well. Not not necessarily for the food quality, but just for the experience of doing it. All right. I want to hear the text for your first sermon that was on a Sunday morning. Uh, uh, Exodus to the uh, the passage where the Israelites cry out to God. I think it's 23 to 25. And uh, the commentary there that God you know, sees, hears, remembers, knows, and comes to their aid. Um, actually, I think I developed the sermon outline for that in a seminary class and then had an opportunity to preach it on the Sunday morning. Great. Fantastic. All right. So w- the main thing we want to talk about is an article that you wrote uh, partially as a resource for Pillar. Also, Nine Marks has, um, has posted it, published it, called 13 Pillars for planting healthy churches. Just want to start kind of with a big question. Impetus behind that? Why'd you write that? Um, let's let's dive in there. Yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, interesting piece. I don't, I don't know that that there are other worlds where uh, the thing that we're uh, we're attempting to do we're so squeamish to define. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're, we're talking uh, books are written on church planting, uh, articles, podcasts. Um, and yet, when you when you kind of get under the surface of some of that, uh, the definitions of church uh, are woefully inadequate in many of those texts. And um, you know, it, I, I think the the process is understandable. We're attempting to write books or articles for a broader audience, and uh, if we're too nuanced in definitions of church, perhaps the readability is uh, diminished. Perhaps our audience, but you know what. What happens then is those books become, you know, highly prescriptive. They become uh, model-based, um, and, and they they cater to uh, pragmatism that that defines all of modern missiology in many ways uh, right now. So you get a lot of how-to stuff, but you don't get a lot of strong definitions of what is the church. What are we attempting to? to plant. And so then, you know, people read those books, people aspire to church planting. And and I think well-meaning in most cases, you know, most of us don't want to be sloppy pragmatists, but if we don't have uh, robust definitions, um, solid ecclesiology going in, uh, and then then just the pressure mounts, you know, we got things to do. And it's not as if you you uh, can avoid polity, right? It's not as if you, you know, tr- you got to have something. Right. And so then you just run to, well, what's the thing that works? Or what's the thing that worked in my buddy's deal? And you start kind of cobbling together uh, pragmatic fixes uh, for the endeavor. And then, you know, having been in this world for 20 years, just seeing the outcome of that, you know, starts really fast, goes well, first couple of years, uh, but then uh, the the cracks uh, begin to to be exposed. In my experience, there's two church plants at least in every church plant, if not three. The the first one's the easiest. That getting to eighteen months, two years, gathering you know fifty to seventy five people, a little bit of energy. Uh, but then there's there's a dip on the backside of that, and in that dip. Uh, the planters then uh, kind of re- they're making decisions about facilities. They're making decisions about bringing on multiple elders uh, or if they're even going to do that. Um, they're settling into some structure and systems. And if they don't do those things really well, um, the the three to five year things start to implode. And by year five, you know, we're, we're, we're packing it up. And that's real sad because we got a ton of things invested. So I just wanted to attempt to argue for really working on robust ecclesiology, really knowing what you're trying to plant uh, before you run after uh, doing whatever works. 
And it's, it's not, I'm going to read actually through, we're not going to go by point by point through the 13, but I'm going to read them out just so people will know and would highly commend it. But it's not, obviously it is about robust ecclesiology, but there's some very practical things in here as well. We want to talk through some of those. Um, so the, the 13 pillars are this one commitment to biblical ecclesiology, to fervent prayer, a focus on raising up faithful elders, uh, a priority on rightly proclaimed, uh, pr- proclaimed truth. Can't speak this morning. Uh, pillar five, an investment in joyful evangelism. Uh, six, a strategy for intentional membership and discipline. I may ask some questions around that. Uh, seven, a concern for spiritual health. Eight, a commitment to persevering disciple making. Uh, nine, a utilization of deeds of mercy and compassion. Ten, expectation of spiritual warfare. Eleven, a strategic partnership with ascending church. Uh, Twelve, a sustainable financial model. And then the last one, a partner uh, partnership with like-minded churches. Uh, really, this is behind pillar itself. Um, all right, so let's 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 talk maybe two or three of uh, in your mind, kind of what seem obvious, but you know, also why. Uh, even though they may seem obvious, you thought this really needs to be in there. I mean, you've already talked a little bit about that in your impetus that sometimes some of these things seem obvious, like you should know what a church is and your polity is before you plant it, but maybe unpack two or three of the ones that maybe some people would say, well, that seems pretty obvious, but why you put them in there and why you felt the need to certainly unpack them uh, as you think through this topic. Yeah. I, I mean, I think everything flows from this, this first pillar of the commitments of biblical ecclesiology and my experience is. And, and there's probably something else we can unpack here, but you, you've got younger and younger men planting churches. And I'm not opposed to, to younger elders necessarily, but um, when that individual, say at 26, 27, is leading a church planting endeavor. And uh, in many ways, you know, the, the model that I reacted against, and one of the reasons I was really hesitant to be a church planter myself was kind of the angry youth pastor that went a mile down the street and threw hand grenades back and forth at their, you know, at the other church. We're not your mama's church, right? Come to come to our deal. And I just thought that was so, so foolish and and weird, honestly. And being fast forward 20 years, I'm not sure we've changed the scorecard on that. Maybe we're a little less public about, you know, mocking the churches that we're reacting from, but you still see people entering the realm of church planting um, having had a lot of bad experiences with ecclesiology, with the, you know, with church culture, and saying, "Well, we're going to be different than that," but not really defining, "Okay, what is it that that we're going to be?" And simply reacting against things that you don't like is not uh, not a healthy enough way uh, to enter church planting. If you haven't redefined, okay, what what does God say a church is, and um, how do how does one create that type of environment? Uh, how do we understand God's intention uh, through the church? And, you know, arguing in this first, first pillar that the church is uh, the ends and means of mission, you know, that that everything, the tip of the spear of God's mission uh, is the local church. And it's a local church defined and set up according to God's parameters in the scriptures. And so uh, want to be uh, want to be committed to that, want to press guys uh, to think through their their ecclesiology. Uh, to have uh, what are close-handed issues and what are the open-handed things that we're going to discuss uh, along the way. A lot of those conversations going in, and if you're doing it well and you're going with a team, if you're going uh, with a fellow elder, to be to be able to, to work through uh, some of those commitments on the front end and have those uh, those conversations. Many times you see guys, you know, link up around, well, you know, our gifts seem to 
lend themselves to, to, to complimenting one another, or we were frat buddies in college. And so we decided we wanted to plant a church together. So, man, but have you guys had conversations around clear ecclesiology and what you believe about the church and how that's going to work itself out in the context in which you're planting? And if you haven't, um, that, that's going to be uh, far more explosive uh, down the road than whether you guys like the same college football team. Good. Are, what, are there two or three that maybe uh, some people have maybe reached out afterwards and said those weren't as obvious, but they're really helpful? Um, yeah, two or three in this category of 13 that may, maybe not everybody would be thinking as they think about planting healthy churches. Yeah, I don't know that there are any that are, that are necessarily off the radar, um, with the exception of number two, trying to move up the list. And I didn't attempt to write this in necessarily a hierarchical order saying number one comes first and then number two, so on and so forth. But uh, to press the idea of prayer up the list, you know, this can easily be an out of sight, out of mind deal. And the types of guys that are drawn to church planting endeavors tend to be uh, very, uh, very driven, very type A in their structure, very visionary. And so we can just run through uh, things like uh, commitment to faithful prayer. And so I think pressing that up the list and, and with that, uh, writing and arguing for corporate prayer, that we we don't just get together for vision and strategy sessions, uh, but we're leading church planting teams that are committed uh, to praying together. I think an under uh, under talked about issue is the role of the sending church in planting endeavors. I'm not sure what pillar that is, maybe down no, number okay. 11. Uh, yeah, yeah. No. yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I just think there's not enough thoughts given to uh, the role of ascending church, the relationship of that sending church. Uh, I think this is a place that pillar can be uh, really helpful in helping to even define that relationship. There's a lot of awkwardness with how a church plant uh, is sent, uh, what the nature of the uh, pastoral oversight is, particularly uh, in those early years. I think we've maybe done a good job of correcting against the parachute drop individual uh, planter and suggested that planters need to plant in teams. And I, I think that's a helpful corrective. I, I would just go one step further and say, even a church planting team that just shows up uh, in New City to get a start isn't going far enough. We need a biblical model of a healthy sending church that's taking ownership of uh, uh, of vetting these, particularly the, the lead planter, and uh, committing to partnership in these endeavors, committing to, to send them effectively. Yeah, we, we're planning, uh, you're helping uh, get together some ideas on a resource that's going to look uh, more in-depth at, at the sending church. So uh, we'll be talking about those, those things in the days ahead. I want to ask about two or three sort of in the middle there, kind of the neat, why you put them in. Some of them uh, one, maybe just some practical outworking of some, but some have been controversial when it comes to uh, planting models, particularly planting models even overseas. But so maybe talk through a priority uh, on rightly proclaimed truth, but why the necessity of putting that in that again, that has been a little bit controversial in some circles, but why is that really a necessity when it comes to building and planting healthy churches? This podcast is sponsored by 10 of those. If you're at the recent T4G conference, you probably went to the bookstore. It was run by 10 of those.com. 
They want to serve the local church by bringing the best books from across the publishers at super low prices to conferences and churches across America. So if you're involved in running a conference or perhaps you have a women's retreat coming up or a church anniversary weekend, invite 10 to provide a pop-up bookstore. There is no charge for them to come. They'll recommend resources and serve you really well, taking care of all the stock, the cash register, sales tax, etc. And they come for conferences and churches of 300 people or more. They can also help you if you're doing things online. They can provide you with a customized online bookstore for your church, and there's no charge for that either. Email their team to get your bookstore set up. That's sales.us at 10 Sales.us at 10 yeah, well, I mean, this goes to a bigger argument. I think I think there's there's great value in most of the people that we send to plant churches to have some experience in uh, local church ministry and say an associate pastor role, uh, something where they're leading and having opportunities uh, to preach and communicate regularly. The step from uh, pastoral intern to planter, or the step, particularly again, I'm thinking the Carolinas is my context. The step from youth pastor. Uh, in an unhealthy church uh, to church planter really doesn't lend itself to most guys having having a lot of reps in uh, preaching and teaching ministry. Just not very good at it, frankly. And, um, and and sadly, many of us have you know culture where you know I got to preach on youth pastor Sunday and grandma bought me a milkshake afterwards and told me it was the best thing I'd ever done. You know, ever done. We've never had anybody really sit across from us and give us honest feedback on. Uh, on our sermon, I can't think of anything that shapes the life of uh, North American church planting endeavors more than that the act of preaching. Uh, uh, and I would argue biblically, that's right and good. Um, and just practically, the, the collective people of God gathered together, sitting and submitting under the word of God through the man that God has raised up to lead this community. Uh, that, that's going to be culture shaping more than anything else uh, that you do in the early years. And it's going to magnetize people and uh, and it's going to press people away. And so we want to be we want to be good at it. And so what I was attempting to argue is, you know, rightly proclaimed truth being faithful exposition, uh, but rightly proclaimed truth also being uh, quality proclaimed truth that we're, we're doing it. We're doing it well. I'm 43 now and I was commenting to someone uh, this week that, you know, I just feel like in the last couple of years, I've gotten comfortable enough in my skin um, to be a decent preacher, you know, to, to have the discernment to know how to apply this truth to the congregation uh, that God's given me. I, I'm not, again, I'm not suggesting you should wait to preach until you're, until you're 40. Uh, but I do think it just takes a lot of reps to settle in. I was telling you that, Nate, the last time I heard you preach, it's just uh, watching your development and the clarity with which you communicate, it's just grown significantly in the, the last several years. And so I think that's a that's a really helpful um, category that we need for most church planters. Yeah, that's good. Appreciate the kind words. You see this, obviously, Paul is telling Timothy, until I come, devote yourself, public reading, exhortation and teaching. You can see the pattern of Paul doing this, you know, Acts 20, he's doing this uh, where he's teaching in the gathering of the church on a Sunday. Uh, I, I would just say something practically, like, you know, I was part of a, a church plant uh, that ended up being able to plant other churches. And I don't think we did this well because we didn't have enough teaching opportunities for guys to get yeah. up. And then we waited really until the Sunday before they left to have them preach. And then obviously, but if you want people to think about joining that, that man, uh, that planter, then let him preach ahead of time 
let them get to know, think through, can I sit underneath his teaching? Uh, but it's obviously central to, to the growing of a healthy church. Yeah, and I think this is, I, I think, Nate, just quickly, this is a place where uh, even the structures and systems, when we do away with things like uh, some kind of Sunday school space, course seminars, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, it, it, maybe that's that's the choice that the congregation makes. But I do think one of the things we need to think through are the implications of that for uh, what you just communicated. We've, we've attempted to say here, like, Hey, let's give a man who aspires to this, let's give him like 12 straight weeks teaching an adult seminar on Sunday mornings for 40 adults and uh, some of those adults twice his age and with a lot more experience. And let's force his hand to prep week in and week out. Let's force his hand to take and ask questions. It's just so uh, clarifying uh, the gifts of an individual. And I think it serves them so well. Because you talk about uh, being overwhelmed, you know, you're commissioned to go plant a church, and then all of a sudden you've got every seven days to deliver a quality sermon uh, to to a group of adults. That's a lot of pressure. And uh, if we haven't given them some opportunities ahead of time, uh, I think we're doing them a disservice. Good. Yeah, well said. Uh, pillar five, uh, practically speaking, an investment in joyful evangelism. What did that look like as you guys started the church you're in, but as you planted, what is it you've tried to instill in your planters? As far as what is joyful evangelism, what does that look like in the life of the early local church? Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're pressing against here the, the notions of uh, programmatic structure, pressing against um, temptation to, to top down, um, you know, event centered forms of evangelism and attempting to encourage uh, every member, those who've been reconciled to God, like Corinthians 5, those who've been reconciled to God or made ministers of reconciliation, God making his appeal through us, that we're commissioned to be agents, ambassadors for Christ uh, from the moment of our conversion. And as we see in the scriptures, that running along natural relational lines. And so, you know, for us, that was the, you know, evangelistic campaign uh, and still is to this day. It's like, where has God and his sovereignty placed you? And how do you live with intentionality where you live, learn, work, and play uh, such that people are both seeing transformation that God's bringing in your life and that you're confident to uh, declare that message uh, to the people that you interact with. And and being a pastor in the South, you know, a lot of that comes with just helping people get more natural. Vanderstelt argues fluency. I think that's a good term there, gospel fluency. It's just more natural in the ways that we speak of Jesus uh, to talk about him as if he's actually good news to us. And I think that's where the joyful uh, tag flows in here, that we're able to just very naturally and conversationally pick up on the themes uh, that people are going to speak in the gym or at the coffee shop or over lunch, uh, walk in the neighborhood. And then I, I think the other piece there is we're able to do that in the context of our local church. And so to think of the, the corporate people of God as uh, these agents of reconciliation, these ambassadors for Christ. So I think of we often apply kind of body life themes, you know, you're, you're a hand, foot, nose, so on and so forth, uh, to internal service to the body. But I think those themes also apply to external evangelism uh, in our communities. We think of, you know, the people in and around our church. We have people who are incredibly gifted in deeds of mercy and compassion. We have people who are, you know, incredibly gifted in uh, hospitality. Uh, and then some who are more gifted in speaking the message of the gospel. Uh, answering apologetic questions from skeptics. 
And so those individuals teaming up in the places that God has has placed them to say, okay, let's let's throw a dinner for our cul-de-sac and let's invite people over and let's have people in our local church community that have different gifts. And then let's not shy away from uh, inviting them to to the corporate gathering. I think it's kind of an awkward, awkward deal how um, unwilling many times we are to say, hey, come check out my church. And yeah, maybe that's a natural impulse. People are super skeptical of the gathered assembly and the church as a group. But our local church should be a thing we're proud of. And it should be uh, the kind of thing that uh, that we want unbelievers to come and check out and see and witness the transformation that God is bringing among his people. And then to be able to answer questions and follow up from that corporate clarity. That's really good and helpful. I want to ask about one more in particular, and then just a couple of final questions. But uh, so pillar six may be one that it would be a little controversial. I mean, I, I know of plenty of church plants who did not have membership for the first year, sometimes even yeah. two years of their church plant. Um, but you put in uh, pillar six, a strategy for intentional membership and discipline. Uh, why this one? Yeah, yeah, I think this is, this is huge. And, and I'm not necessarily, Nate, arguing that instilling membership day one is the way to go. Uh, yeah, I think there's some wisdom in uh, thinking through timeline here, but having an intentional strategy from the beginning, I think is the important, uh, the important qualifier. We actually stalled with instilling members um, uh, for a season. And one of the reasons was uh, counsel early on with church planters. Uh, and it just, I don't know how to say this, but it just uh, attracts wackos and uh, 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 people that have tried to blow up another church. They, you know, this, this is an easy target or, um, you know, people that that weren't given leadership and now they're, they're coming or, man, there's just, also, so when I think back about those early nine months, it was it was as important who didn't stick as who did. And had we membered right at the outset, we would have been doing church discipline pretty much constantly in that first uh, year because because of that reality. And so there was some time to just solidify solidify culture. Uh, but having a process of saying uh, who are our, our members, who are the people that we're entrusted to care for, I think the nine marks guys have argued uh, this in writing incredibly well. The value of church membership uh, and church discipline for uh, for local congregations. So I won't uh, belabor those same points, but to put it in a church planting context and say for you as a leader, uh, because of the ebb and flow of a church plant, it may be more difficult for you to know who are the people that I've committed to to pastor and to shepherd and to care for. So having that process of, of membership, who are, who are the who's the flock that God has given me, uh, them having something that they're committed to. Hey, this is where I'm planting my flag. I'm I'm being a Christian here. I'm committed to this uh, to this body and having some permanence with that commitment. Uh, I think is good for. Uh, the member, and then the process of church discipline. As I look back on the first five years of our church, I, there were more definitional moments. But the first time we brought a church discipline scenario to our membership, it's hard for me to think of more defining um, scenes in the life of our church than that moment. And uh, it was around sexual sin. So you've got you know, the theme, cultural thing. Okay. Th this is, this is something that they're convictional about. 
membership matters. They're approaching membership in such a way that they're willing to discipline an individual. They're doing it with a posture of love and a desire for restoration. And you can almost watch in the room that night the, the, the weight of membership, the weight of local church ministry solidifying in the people. And I don't know that I could have gotten there uh, with a sermon on church discipline in the same way that modeling what uh, effective pastoral ministry looks like through that scene accomplished. Yeah, we I would give a similar testimony to, to our church plan as well. Um, and I mean, obviously, you know, historically, Baptists have held to the importance of regenerative church membership. And part of that is a loving thing to unbelievers to say, hey, like, we don't think you're a part of this. Like, we, yep. we, we desire for you to be a part of this. But we don't want to pronounce over you something that's untrue about your spiritual state before God. And so I think sometimes I know there's a, there's this push. We could do a whole podcast on the, the idea of belonging before believing. But drawing those lines is actually a loving way to, to help people say, hey, we do want you to be a part of this, but we also don't want to pronounce over you something that's untrue about your about your eternity. And, and we desire to have clear boundaries. And so I think uh, even though, again, I think some might push back on that one, I thought that was a really, really helpful one to add in to the um, to the 13. I, I think, Nate, the, the also a consideration for planters is if you don't do these things early, it is going to be very, very difficult for you to retroactively create these systems and structure. Uh, the cement is already set. And if it's set, uh, you know, off kilter uh, in some ways, if you have not created a strategy for membership and then year five, you're trying to say, well, OK, all you people, now we're going to do this thing or. Well, we haven't really cared so much about church discipline matters, but now that we're kind of an adolescent church, we're going to start uh, caring for that. It, I mean, it seems it seems like you're a fraud in that moment. And so, um, one of the things that that church planters have in their favor is that people are coming, uh, particularly if they stick. There's trust in the leaders. You know, they're, they're not necessarily attached to the. This isn't grandpa's church built that wall and he's buried out back and so they're committed to the entity and they've had like eight pastors since you know since grandpa was there um but in a church planting context they're 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 following a, a leader uh they're they're attached to this person uh that god has a position to lead the vision that god has given this this individual and so uh, as those leaders entrusted uh, to to un- oversee the flock uh, under the shepherd of Christ, uh, we have great opportunity to say, hey, in this environment, this is the culture that we're attempting to set. And we may be setting it early on in some ways that we're going to have to add layers to later, like the robustness of the way we're doing membership, uh, the way we handle a discipline issue is certainly going to change from 18 months to 10 years. Um, but we want the the form to be in place that the church can then grow into. That's helpful, brother. Uh, let me ask you just a final question. It's a, It'll be, a, I mean, maybe a little bit of a big question, but uh, maybe it's at the beginning of a conversation. So in light of this, uh, I just want to ask, should every, let's just say in our denomination, our convention, should every SBC church be involved in planting? Uh, and if so, what what should that, what does that look like? What should that look like? And then any kind of final words and or resources you'd recommend in this uh, in this area, this, this topic? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's a yes, no answer to that question. And I think that at issue is how do we define involvement? So I, the yes issue is, I think every church can and should be involved in church planting endeavors in some way. Um, in some sense, we're doing that via our partnership with the cooperative program, Baptist Life, uh, that by virtue of the generosity of God's people in churches, we're able to plant and send and support and, um, and, and church planting is happening. Uh, and in many ways, you know, Baptist associationalism or denominational life is, is formed around those tenets, right? We want to come together for the sake of things like church planting and theological uh, instruction. So we can do that. I, I think we can even go one step further and say we can personalize that. So every church can uh, know a church planter that they're praying for specifically. You know, every, every pastor can take some level of responsibility to, uh, at minimum, you know, I got woke up this morning to an email from a, from a local church pastor just saying, hey, I'm praying for you today. I'm thankful for you. Here's a note of encouragement. Like, that's something that, that every church uh, can do. I don't think every church is equally positioned uh, to be uh, a quality sending church. You know, I, I think in, in many cases, uh, the work of uh, revitalization, the, the fractured disunity, the unhealthy ecclesiology, uh, many of these churches are just not in a place to raise up, train, develop, and then send uh, a, a church planter. And so I would say for those churches, um, particularly early on in that process, like finding some other churches that you can partner and collaborate with and be encouraged by is probably a better option for you than attempting to own the church planting venture uh, yourself. However, um, I do think the the work of planting, the work of raising up leaders can be a tremendous catalyst for the work of revitalization. And so it's much like maybe the argument that a parent would have, like, when are we ready to, to have our first kid? Well, in, in, in a sense, you're never ready, but there are also, you know, maybe some like, like frivol, like ooh, there's some in-house things that we need to get in order that might make it better or worse for us to have a kid at, at this season. So uh, church maybe never feels like we're fully ready uh, to send a plant or to uh, to uh, you know, uh, oversee the finances of a church planting endeavor, target a location. And so I would say, hey, maybe sooner than you think, you can be involved in that work uh, in some way. However, and here, here would be my apologetic for something like the Pillar Network, um, most churches just simply can't do that alone, right? And so we have to say, okay, who is, is there a network? Is there a group? Are there some sister churches um, that I can partner with, and maybe you know, first effort they're leading, they're training up and sending, and we're kind of coming alongside of that, sending a short-term team or prayer partners, and then over time the weight of that responsibility shifts, and maybe we're able to lead, or maybe we're able to uh, train up an associate pastor that would go with. Well, most of us, frankly, Nate, when I mean, we just there's so much on our plate that creating those webs of relationships are so, we just don't have the time to do that and do local church pastoral ministry, you know, enter something like the Pillar Network, where you have um, these, these relationships that are predicated on shared ecclesiology, that then allow me to have some type of brand identity with uh, these other churches, 
that says you know, we can actually do something together. You know, we're, we're starting way down the field in terms of uh, conversationally, in terms of practice. I know that by virtue of the church saying we align with these tenets of the pillar network, that when we say church, we're talking about the same thing and our priorities are going to be very similar. And I hope some of what I wrote in the 13 Pillars article would be some of those shared commitments that then when a pillar pastor says we're going to plant, like, okay, right, we can get in on on something like that. So finding those kind of networks, those types of environments, and I think that goes to your last question, you know, what are the resources? I think finding groups um, with shared affinity, uh, shared ecclesiology, and and just feasting on those resources, um, you know, in many ways, what pillar uh, is doing is going to be uh, defined by much the nine mark stream of ecclesiology, and you know there's no need to to reinvent the wheel with uh, with church planting resources. Like in many ways, just feast on those good books on ecclesiology, those good resources on polity. Get clear about that, and then begin to ask the what about questions to church planting, which something like a pillar network. And the leaders there, and I would just make myself available. Like, shoot me an email, or let's set up a, a call, and we can talk about well, how do you apply plural elder leadership in the context of a church plant? How, you know, what's the timeline? How do we how do we structure all those things? That's really good. It, we even have a story, a pillar story from a church in Scotland. So not in the area of planting, but revitalization. Uh, there's a church in our network called Charlotte Chapel. It was actually planted by a friend of William Carey and Andrew Fuller. A guy named Chris, Christopher Anderson. So the name of the church is Charlotte Chapel. In the early 1900s, they were struggling. They were down to just a handful, you know, a couple dozen people. And a church called Hoyk Baptist Church sent somebody to become the pastor to revitalize it. The church grew, doing really well. Well, now five years ago, Charlotte Chapel, Hoyk Baptist was struggling, and Charlotte Chapel sent a guy down to be the pastor at Hoyk. And now they've been re- revitalized and they're they're thriving, growing. So it's it's really cool to see if you start to develop not just a obviously cooperative program. We love that with SBC, but to actually develop intentional relationships with with sister churches. You never know what the what kind of doors the Lord's going to open for that that kind of cooperation and partnership. That's great. Well, Matt, appreciate uh, again your time on this uh, thirteen pillars for planting healthy churches. You can find that at Nine Marks, uh, and and so we'll be hopefully at Pillar working on more resources like this in the days ahead. But appreciate you taking time to be on the podcast, brother. Thanks, Nate. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, baptist21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.